Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, welcome to another episode of Informed Dissent. Great to be with you again. Hi, Jeff. Good to be back. So we've got a very special guest uh, that we're going to be interviewing today. And uh, I consider him a friend. I've had the privilege of going on his show several times uh, and helping out uh, some of his uh, family during this COVID crisis. And that is syndicated talk radio host on the Salem Network, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Dr. Gorka served President Trump during his administration as deputy assistant to the president. He was born in Britain Uh, of parents that escaped communist Hungary. Dr. Gorka grew up under the tutelage of Margaret Thatcher, where he learned about the importance of freedom and liberty. He also served, interestingly, I I don't think I knew this, but served in the British Army. Uh, In 2008, he moved to America. Uh, He has a doctorate in public science uh, from a university in Budapest, also a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He has in his career briefed the CIA, DIA, Navy SEALs on a variety of counterterrorism topics. And most importantly, Dr. Gorka has a phenomenal merchandise store on his website. So go check it out. A lot of good stuff. Dr. Gorka, welcome to Informed Dissent. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for having me, although I feel a little bit intimidated uh, having a board certified uh, psychiatrist and an MD in front of me. I feel like I should have a hospital gown on or something. Don't feel intimidated. I work primarily with children. Well, that's even more disturbing for me. I've always admitted openly I have a mental age of a 14 year old. So let, 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 let us proceed. Well, listen, there's so much to talk about and you've got such a wide range of knowledge about the world and American politics and international politics. And you're a voice of reason on the radio every single day, uh, interviewing a variety of guests. And it's just always fascinating to listen to. Give us your take of what's going on right now in American politics. Wow. Um, Do you want the eight hour answer or the eight day answer? Um, (laughs) All right. It, it, It came to me about. So I have a reputation um, that Jesse, Jesse Waters on Fox called me one day on TV, the scariest guy in media. And um, the British, when I, when I became a deputy assistant to the president, the Daily Telegraph did a big piece on me as President Trump's uh, attack pit bull or something. But, but you know, I, I, deep down, I'm really soft and cuddly. And now and again, after the last six years of, of just the incessant psychotic attacks on President Trump and anybody who is a member of his family or anybody who worked for him. And now and again, I just I'd have these moments where the inner child or my feminine side or whatever would say, why are they doing this? Just try try to understand what makes another human so vituperative, so all out in their hatred. I mean, I had I had one quote-unquote journalist write 52 hit pieces on me in less than two months. And I understood I was being attacked as a proxy for the president. But when they attacked not only me, but my wife, when that same journalist wrote wrote a hit piece on my 18-year-old son, at high school age son, using the word traitor in the headline, I kind of stopped for a second, despite what my family had been through in 
you know, under fascism and then communism. And I thought, what, what the hell is this? What, what is going on in America? And it dawned on me, and, and this is the simplest answer I can give you guys. In this nation today, there, there are two tribes. There, well, there, there are a lot of people who are apolitical, just want to make the car payment at the end of the month, make sure the kids have got the, you know, the textbooks for the next semester. But with those that have a political identity, there's two tribes, and it's not left and right. It's not Democrat and Republican. It is those who love America and think it's good, and those who think America is the problem, is racist, bigoted, is the new colonial what have you. And, and that's, that's the sad division. I, I'm in the camp with President Trump. We love this country. We think it's the greatest nation on God's green earth. And there are those who think it should be destroyed, dismantled, and remade in some vision of, uh, I don't know, critical race theory or, or Noam Chomsky's paradise, if there is such a thing. So for, for me, that's where we are. We're divided between people who love America, get America, and those who think America's the problem. And it's, it's saddening. As an as a immigrant to this country who chose this country, the fact that sizable portion of our population thinks that is, is really depressing. Which side do you think is winning at this point? So let's look at the empirical data. We have, and people, I love it when people say, oh, President Trump can't win. It's, it's got to be Ron DeSantis or some milk toast, you know, Mitt Romney Mark V instead, because they'll be nice to him. And, and I say, guys, do you know how many people voted for my old boss? He got 74 million votes, which is the greatest vote tally for any incumbent president since George Washington. No, no, no president in American history has received as many votes incumbent as he did. So that's one metric. I think what happened in the last four weeks with regards to Mar-a-Lago has, has been a, a massive red pill for a lot of people who say, hang on a second, he's the president, he goes to his grave with the highest level clearances that any human being can have, and they're rifling through Melania Trump's lingerie draw. What, what the hell is going on? Is, is this Gestapo tactics? So I think the 74 million is probably closer to 10 million by now. So I think, you know, that's a good sign. However, who has the levers of power and who controls the culture? This is the sad um, reality of the conservative movement in the last 50 years. Whilst we were paying the rent, paying the mortgage, building our companies, running our clinics and what have you. We surrendered the culture to the left, the long march through the institutions, the you know, Antonio Gramsci, uh, Adorno, Marcuse plan worked until today. And this is, not, this is not an exaggeration. It's just in the cold light of day. The only thing that, that we own as patriots, as conservatives, the only thing we control is talk radio. Uh, everything else, uh, Hollywood, even big corporations, uh, the mainstream media, it's controlled by people who hate America. So we have the numbers, but there are some powerful people and a minority of people who are very loud in their radicalism, and, and we have to disabuse them of, of the uh, belief that they are in the plurality. And I think, going back to you know, the medical profession, I think, and I, you know, hopefully I'm not being Pollyannish about this, the biggest 
red pill of all is what the medical profession is doing to young children when it comes to sexual transition. So, you know, the, the idea um, that 12-year-old girls are having their breasts removed, um, that, that somebody comes along and says, I'm not a, a male, I'm a female, the, the only mental condition in human history where we actually affirm the illness of the patient, when somebody comes along and says, I have 42 personalities and one of them is Napoleon, and we don't say, congratulations, uh, Mr. Bonaparte. That's what we're doing in, in the medical field. And I think for a lot of individuals who otherwise saw themselves as apolitical, this is going to be the moment when they go, sorry, what, what, what is Boston Children's doing right now? What, what is the state of Wisconsin saying when, when the teachers are given instructions to help children socially transition in secret behind the backs of their parents? So we haven't won. We can win. And, and the good news is the sheer insanity, the radicalization of the left means that we probably will win. You know, the assumption several months ago was that there would be a red wave across the country, take back the House, good chance of taking back the Senate. But the sentiment of late seems to be that that inevitability is not as what it once seemed to be. Why do you think that is and what can we do to make sure that that actually happens? Well, it's the one thing I say almost every day on my show. I, I have three million listeners, then I have four million other followers on social media, then I have all the video content, and I, I say to them, look, I, I love talk radio. The idea that I have a national show in America still blows my mind because, you know, as a kid, I used to listen on a you know, little plastic transistor radio into the wee hours to talk radio. And I love it. I get it. You know, Rush Limbaugh, amazing. My, my colleagues, Dennis Prager, um, Dan Bongino, all the others, I love it. But I say, guys, it's not enough to listen. It's not enough to find a little sustenance and, and soul food by listening to your favorite conservative host for a couple of hours every day. Get off your ass and do something. If my wife, who utterly detests politics who I've been trying to convince for years to get involved because she has a far better temperament than me. I have, you know, I have uh, high blood pressure. She's very calm and collected. I get very excitable. She doesn't. And I've been trying to tell her for 10 years to get involved. And she said, no, are you nuts? And then she announces to me four months ago, without clearly having read, you know, St. Paul's letter about how wives have to, you know, get their husband's permission first. She said, oh, by the way, I'm running for local office. And I said, what, you mean you want my opinion as to whether you should run? No, 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 I've already filed my papers. If my wife can do that, and she, I asked her why, she said, because the local community center in the library had a children's drag queen story hour three miles from my house, and we've got, we've got to stop that. Children? Children? Are you kidding me? If my wife who detests politics can do it. Don't just listen. Get out there. I don't care if you're running for local library council. I don't care if it's the county commissioner. The left was very clever. What Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. Well, they actually did it. You know, with George Soros's foundations, the Open Society, they funded the no-cash bail local prosecutors. They, they ran for local office. And we just, we just looked at them and woke up one morning with Baltimore in flames and 
Louis Vuitton being, you know, ransacked on Fifth Avenue. It's time for everybody who loves America to just get engaged. If you're not running for office, then you're part of the problem. And, and, and the last thing on a tactical level every single day, never, ever censor yourself. I, I can tell you stories about this, but, you know, whether it's on social media, at the water cooler, at work, at the barbecue, down the road, never, ever censor yourself. If you know something is true, like a man is a man and a woman is a woman, you have to put your money where your mouth is and cleave to the truth. We do, we do, we do those two things and the republic will be fine. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you, Seb, and Mark and I have seen that as part of America's frontline physicians that was started early in the pandemic, a group of doctors that had seen and heard enough and we wanted to speak out with the truth. Uh, we had the opportunity to interview Surgeon General in Florida, Joe Ladapo, recently, uh, and he's another one, very brave physician warrior who was willing to speak out and tell the truth. In my own community here in Southern California, I have seen more new candidates running for school board and city council than I have ever seen in my stint in politics. People that have never, ever wanted to get into politics but are stepping up because they saw what your wife saw, and that is things in our local schools and communities that they didn't like and they were tired of expecting somebody else to take care of the problem. If that's emblematic where you live and where I live and that's occurring across the country, I think we'll be in good shape. And of course, the legacy media doesn't want to tell us about that. They want the opposite message to be driven. That is uh, that Republicans are blowing it, that we can't actually win. They want everybody to stand down and to not continue to fight. So my message to people is, number one, if you can't be an activist, then you better support activists. And it's no longer okay to be on the sidelines and just watch the parade go by, or you're gonna lose your country. And listen, you know better than anybody, your parents grew up in communist um, Hungary. Um, you speak multiple languages. Uh, you've consulted military about what's going on. And uh, this is not unique to the United States. This is ha happening all over the country, all over the world rather. And uh, they're all looking to America for our leadership, um, our leadership for liberty, you know, because if liberty falls here in the United States, there's nowhere else that it's going to be rescued. So I think we, we literally are that, uh, that final hope of mankind on planet Earth. And it's time that we stand up and fight people that aren't used to fighting, that don't want to fight, that it's uncomfortable to fight. It's too bad. We, we're going to lose this country if we don't have warriors that are willing to go to battle for this country. Yeah, I mean, look, I know you're good friends with Dennis Prager. I, I, I'm Catholic, uh, cradle Catholic, born and bred, but I, I call him my rabbi. And, and what Dennis says with regularity is absolutely correct. There are three types of people in the world. There are warriors like yourselves. There are those who support the warriors behind the scenes. And there are the rest that do nothing. Well, sorry, guys, you don't have the choice to be in the third category. A civilization is measured in large part by how it treats the most vulnerable in its society, meaning the unborn, the children and the elderly. If you look at what's happening in Western civilization, the signs are not good. When we see a million children in America being aborted alone every year, 
We look at the rampaging. I mean, Europe now has laws in states that allow you to kill yourself, to be medically assisted in your suicide if you have depression, if you just simply, you know, had a hard year. That way lies literally the suicide of a civilization. So it's now or never, as a good Orthodox friend of mine says, you know, Israel, the greatest nation made by God, uh, America, the greatest nation made by man. And, and the fact that we are the only nation uh, on the planet to have been founded on the principle of individual liberty uh, based upon what? Not based upon any rights deigned to us by the government, but because we are made in the image of our creator. That is a non-negotiable. If you d doubt that, if you say that there is no afterlife, there is no God, there is no ultimate authority, then guess what? Anything is justifiable. Then, then killing a child after it is born, like the f former governor of North, North of, of uh, Governor Northam of the Commonwealth here in Virginia said, as a pediatrician, that blows my mind, a how Governor Northam got his MD, and then as a pediatrician said, yeah, if the abortion fails, you know, the baby comes out, and then we'll talk to the doctor and the mother, and they'll decide whether they get a mallet to the head of the of the newborn baby or not. You know, there's a lot of things to be said about the fall of the Roman Republic. I'm not sure they went as far as that. So, yes, now or never, guys, step up to the plate. My wife and I heard Dennis Prager speak recently to a large group, and part of his message was um, that everything the left touches, they destroy. And he recanted a conversation that he would have annually with his father, who passed many years ago. And he would say, Dad, what's the biggest difference between when you grew up and now? And his dad's answer often was, uh, now children are in charge of the household. Uh, before that never was the case. And when you grow, when you have children in charge and they are um, spoiled, they grow up to be narcissistic uh, adults. And that's what we're seeing now. And he said, you know, it's really a difference between conservatives that, that want to save America and liberals that want chaos. And the example, one example he gave is you look at the Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell has an inscription on it from an obscure book of the Torah, Leviticus. Leviticus is one of the more difficult books to understand and read. And he said the founders were so God, Judeo-Christian centered that they picked a, a, a verse from Leviticus of all books of the Bible. And it says something about preserve liberty throughout the land. And they knew that without God, there could be no liberty. And when you remove God, as we've done um, pretty consistently now for several generations, out of the schools, out of the government, that the end result is a loss of liberty and that Dennis's perspective is, it's precisely because of that that we're seeing the destruction of the United States. And to reverse it, we don't need the right politician Although, you know, Trump did some very good things, we need a spiritual revival that starts at the grassroots up, not the top down. And I think we're seeing that with evangelical churches for the first time that are getting involved in politics from school boards that are, be take, that are being taken back at the grass, grassroots level. So I think that's the hope of America, not the right politician at the top, but the right leaders at the bottom that are willing to fix their own small town first, and then let that spread ultimately to Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, President Trump became president because of a phenomena 
because of the hollowing out of America's soul. That's why my, my latest book is actually called The War for America's Soul, because this is, this is spiritual warfare. The forces arrayed against us are, are truly demonic. Um, but, but a word of caution, uh, you know, as an immigrant to this nation, the, the last two and a half years for me have been, have been depressing. Why? Because what is the, I mean, I don't need to tell you, I mean, you wrote the book on COVID-19, but uh, what, is, what is the foundational ethos of this nation? It's the pioneer. It's rugged individual. It's go west, go forth, young man. And then what happened? A virus that we didn't know anything about, everybody had to learn up on it, I get it, hits the nation. President Trump understands, he says, shut down travel from China. He's called a hysterical, quote, hysterical uh, xenophobe by, by then Senator or former Vice President Biden. And then what happens? Some guy who's been in his job for 38 years at the National Institutes for Allergies and Infectious Diseases, who got it totally wrong on AIDS, who's been helping to fund the Wuhan lab with our taxpayer dollars, uh, he says, yeah, shut it all down. Oh, not Amazon and not Walmart, but everybody else, shut it down. The schools, the businesses. And what did Americans do? We agreed. They listened. I mean, there's, there's one, that female restaurant owner in California, there's that one gym owner in New, New Jersey who said, uh, no, I, I'm not closing down. If you yeah. want to wear a mask or whatever, then fine. And we have, what, two, two stories in a nation of 320? There should have been a big up yours. There yeah. should have been a big, you know, 10,000, 100,000 businesses should have said, excuse me, I'm going to feed my children and I'm going to allow my employees to feed their children. Go yeah. to hell, Fauci. And we just surrendered and genuflected at his altar. So it's been said by people much wiser than me, of all the virtues, courage is the most important because it makes the others possible. So now is the time for everyone to show their American courage. This was a huge disappointment for me as well. And I noticed it most when I went to the Balkan republics over the summer. I spent six weeks in Bosnia, Macedonia, and Kosovo. And the one thing that jumped out at me the most, which I wrote about in my Substack when I was actually sitting at a cafe in Tuzla called Sloboda, which means freedom in Bosnian, was that the Bosnians in particular, they are disobedient, they are non-compliant, and they are incredibly supportive, viciously, violently supportive of Sloboda, of freedom. Whereas the Americans, we Americans, have inverted that virtue structure. And now we are compliant, we are obedient, and we are not actually searching for freedom. As, as Dennis often says, Dennis Prager often says, we are looking for being taken care of. We're not looking for freedom. And the Kosovars, interestingly, you probably know this uh, from your background in political science, there's a very uh, somewhat unattractive, but very largely symbolic and important statue of Bill Clinton in downtown Kosovo because of what he did to bring uh, protection for that republic while it was being decimated in the uh, Yugoslavian war. And the Kosovars today, they still support democracy more fervently than most Americans that I've seen. In the conversations I had with the cab drivers, the hotel workers, people out on the street, I love talking to people and they speak English quite well. I don't really speak much uh, Albanian, uh, nor do I speak much Bosnian or Macedonian. And I was so struck by it that I wrote an article on it that day in the cafe in Tuzla because I really do believe that 
Americans, largely speaking, are disappointing me, disappointing you, disappointing a lot of us because of their compliance, because of their obedience, their lack of fervent uh, passion for democracy and liberty. And I believe a lot of it is driven by fear. It's driven by narcissism. It's driven by a lack of uh, religious values. All of the values that you see in Central Europe. I think that most of what we what we lack right now, we can see in these uh, Southern, Central, and Eastern European nations, which are the values and virtues of traditional America, foundational America, that they inspired or they were inspired by and are still inspired by, despite the fact that we don't currently express them. It's almost like there's this time warp where those people are living in the post-war American era where we're just getting into middle-class values, we're holding strong with religious values, we're really trying to build up our country, which is the way that America really was in the 50s and 60s and 70s. That's where these countries are. They're at that apogee. And now it's up to them to decide if they want to continue to grow and develop on that foundation or whether they want to go the way of Western Europe, which is to reach, as he was just referring to, this state of end of Rome decadence where you've you've attained 89, 90 percent of what you need. And because of that, you start to try to perfect your society rather than improve it. And perfection means eliminating all of those rough edges and those those sort of fraying threads that seem to get in the way of purity, which are religious values, family, uh, small government, all of the things that make life a little bit messy, but really make it great. Those things are gone. You were saying Americans have largely are, or I, I followed you until you said something about what, what has happened to, to uh, Americans vice uh, Bosnians. Essentially, the state of Central Eastern and Southern Europe is where we were in the U.S. after post-World War II. We yeah. were rising in our middle class values. We were reaching this stage of, of, of real prosperity based upon the foundation of freedom, democracy, liberty, religion, community, family. And they still have that. They still look towards that, even though it's declining in the U.S., which is somewhat ironic and sad. If they can continue on the path that we were on without going into this late stage decadent fall of Rome, which is, as you described, I think pretty accurate where we are, this stage of pers uh, perfecting our nation rather than improving it, which, of course, perfection is always the enemy of the good and it ends up destroying you. If they can do that, they will wind up surpassing Western Europe, in my view, Hungary, Poland, uh, the Balkans republics, uh, maybe not Czechoslovakia because it's gone secular, but certainly Slovakia will. All of these countries that still retain religion and family values, somewhat more conservative countries, they are going to rise. Their youth is amazing. They have a huge youth population. We're losing our youth population. We're a graying geriatric, turning soon geriatric country. So I, I really am very inspired by those countries, and I wish that Americans could know more about them and could begin to um, kind of take back what we've lost in history and um, take in what's actually currently alive and active and, and, and really invigorating in um, some of these Eastern, Southern, and, and, and Central European nations. That's, that's been my recent source of inspiration because I, just as you, have, have become somewhat somewhat uh, disgruntled and profoundly depressed over the last couple of years with what I've seen coming out of the homes of Americans. I, I would, I mean, it's, this is, this is a, a topic for a much longer discussion. I, I would, there's a lot of differentiation with that region. As somebody who spent 15 years uh, in Hungary after the fall of communism, and actually I was um, 
program director for a, uh, a German foundation that brought young intellectuals, young politicians from the whole region, from the Balkans and from Eastern Europe to, to Budapest to get trained in, in civil society. I, I would say what you're witnessing that was positive is most likely a function of proximity to a very recent war for independence. So, you know, our war for independence was 1776. Uh, the Bosnians, the Croats, they were fighting in 1991 to 1995 and, and beyond. That's, that's, you know, that's recent memory. Uh, when it comes to other nations of the region that didn't have that civil war uh, or revolutionary aspect, I can tell you, as somebody who lived in post-communist Hungary, 40 years of communism, I mean, there's a reason I don't live there anymore. For 40 years of communism really messes with the soul of a nation, with, with one serious exception. I, I would say the Baltics are, are unique. I would say the, the fact that they were absorbed into the Soviet Union in 41 illegally by Stalin kept that revolutionary spirit of independence alive for the longest time. And then I would say Poland. Poland, because in Poland, unlike Hungary and elsewhere, they never co-opted the church. The, the Catholic church always was, was militant and resisted. But um, I, 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 would put, I would probably put the, the post-Yugoslav republics in a different category to the rest of Eastern and Central Europe, and I'd put the Poles in, in a separate category as well. But yes, I mean, look, it happens to every successful empire, to every successful nation. What, what have we had for the last, you know, for the last 60, 70 years in America? Prosperity, safety, and wealth. And what does that breed? Complacency and soft men. I mean, the, the idea that mascu masculinity could be deemed toxic in the land of General Patton, you know, Clint Eastwood, I mean, I, I, John Wayne. I, I, I get it if you did that in, you know, Monaco, but in America. There's a reason why colleges have safe spaces for the kids these days. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's um, it's 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 depressing, but we have a unique place to, to fill or, or, or a place to recapture, because as you as you said, Jeff, everybody looks to us. I mean, if, if you're a, I, I love the story of Guan Chang Quan, the, um, the blind uh, lawyer from China, the anti-abortion activist. When he escaped house arrest as a, you know, blind man and hitchhiked his way to, to Beijing. When he got to Beijing, whose embassy door did he knock on? Wasn't the Iranians, wasn't the Germans wasn't the French. It was ours. Why? Why, why do dissidents knock on our door? Why, why do Cubans literally, you know, wind surf from Cuba through shark infested waters to come here? Uh, because we're America. We, we just have to rediscover that America. Absolutely. Seb, tell us a little bit about your experience working with President Trump. What was that like? <laughs> Everybody wants to know what it's really like. Um, read my books. The second book I wrote after I left the administration is uh, Why We Fight. And then the most recent one, as I said, is The War for America's Soul. Look, uh, I want to disabuse anyone of, you know, what's he really like? If you've been alive for the last 50 years, for 30 years, if you've switched on a television, uh, you know who, what Donald Trump is like. I mean, he, he wasn't my cup of tea to begin with when I met him in Trump Tower in the, the summer of 15, because I grew up in the UK. I went to a private school, stiff upper lip, all that kind of stuff. And then I meet this 
brash, brassy, you know, building guy, con contractor from Queens that took a bit of getting used to. But the, from the first two minutes talking to him, I said, yeah, I like this guy because I could tell the thing he detests the most is political correctness. And, and what he's like, well, whether he's in front of a stadium of 60,000 people or on the TV screens for the 14 seasons of The Apprentice, or whether it's just the two of you in the Oval Office, it's exactly the same. And that's why it's so bloody f refreshing. I mean, I, I live and work in this stinking, malodorous pit that is Washington, D.C., uh, that is just full of Janus-faced <laughs> scumbags that have, you know, not two faces, they have multiple faces. President Trump behind closed doors is exactly the same as he is when he stands up at that, you know, campaign platform and people are screaming USA, USA. It's utterly, totally genuine. And, and, and the thing that is, is, is most satisfying is he loves America. I mean, when, think about it. He didn't, need, he didn't need the money. I didn't, I didn't need the fame. When your last name is literally, you know, known across the globe. Why, why did he think, why, why do we think he did it if it wasn't for the fame and the money which he gave back to the U.S. taxpayer? He did it because he saw a nation that was broke and he wanted to fix it. And he did. And then along comes COVID. Is he running in 2024? Absolutely. 110%. And you think he, uh, you think he's got as good a chance to win as he did in 2016? After the last two years, what do you think? I mean, here's the problem. You, you, know, you know your own field. It doesn't matter what the, what the field is, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a car mechanic, whether you're an economist. You can only fix a problem if two conditions obtain. Number one, <laughs> you got to diagnose the problem correctly. Number two, you got to have the skill sets to fix it. Now, take politics out of the equation. I don't care who your listeners voted for. Well, I do, but, you know, for the purposes of this exercise. The economy is a disaster. I mean, international relations, geopolitics, a dumpster fire of gargantuan proportions. So what's going to stop it? A, you got to admit you're an alcoholic, right? You got you to recognize the problem. You got to diagnose the disease correctly. And B, you got to have the skills to fix it. The recent survey, 62% of the people that are forming economic policy in the White House today, the economic advisors, have never worked in the private sector. They've never signed the front of a check. None of them. None of them have run a business. So how is 9% inflation, which is really, you know, probably 14%, how is that going to be fixed? A, if you think it's not a problem, and B, you've got nobody on the team who knows anything about anything. So it will be, if you thought the last year and a half was bad, the next two and a half years are going to get even worse. And as a result, if we can stop the election, you know, um, the fraud, if we can prevent the mail-out ballots, he strolls back into the White House. But that's upon us. We have to make sure that the local legislatures, the state houses do their constitutional duty and make sure that the election is safe. So is Mar-a-Lago and the FBI raid all about trying to prevent him from running? Well, it's about two things. It's about that there will be criminal indictments. They will make some spurious you know, charge about document security or whatever. 
and they'll charge him with something. So it's about stopping him from running because they have no platform. And the other thing is very simple. It's about intimidating anyone who voted for him. I mean, look at, look at you know, Steve Bannon. Peter, Peter Navarro, on a misdemeanor, is arrested by an FBI SWAT team at Reagan and put in leg shackles, strip-searched, and put in solitary. That, this isn't just about... I mean, that it's primarily about President Trump, but it's about criminalizing conservatives. When, when the FBI uses the Patriot Act powers against parents who want their children to go back to school and not to have to wear a mask, this is about criminalizing conservatives. Do you continue to communicate with President Trump? I don't bug him when he needs me. I, you know, I, I, I help him. I last saw him at Mar-a-Lago for the... Um, for the premiere of uh, 2000 Mules, but I'm working on some things for him that have to do with personnel. January 6th, has that commission reached out to you and asked you to come talk? I would be delighted if they would. I, I would love to be in the same room with Adam Schiff and uh, Liz <laughs> Cheney. I, I, I would pay to be in front of that bunch of cackling hyenas. No, um, the scumbags, um, uh, just before Christmas, I got a lovely FedEx package on my doorstep uh, with a subpoena to uh, Verizon uh, that had... Um, they had requested all of my phone data regarding January 6th, which is weird because I never went near Congress. I was sitting in the front row at the White House listening to the president. Um, but they subpoenaed my phone records, my wife's phone records, and my children's phone records. Wow. So they, that's as far, far as the uh, Gestapo tactics have got with regards to me. But hey, Adam, if you're listening... I'm ready. <laughs> are, you st are you still allowed to lecture at the uh, Kennedy School of Government? Uh, I have, not for a couple of months because things have got even politically correct at Fort Bragg, but uh, I just got some good news that they, uh, they should be uh, in need of my service uh, imminently. But I remember, I, I remain a member of the, um, the president commissioned me just before he left office. So in addition to serving in the White House, I'm still a member of the, na the Pentagon's National Security Education Board. So Biden uh, hasn't uh, managed to get me out of that position. He'd actually technically have to change the legislation to fire me. So I'm still keeping my, uh, my oar in the water, as they say. If President Trump is reelected, would you serve him again if you asked? Uh, my standard reply, uh, when you get a request like that from the most powerful man in the world to serve the nation, uh, it's not an honor. It is, uh, it is an honor and it is a duty to do so. So um, I don't enjoy working inside the machine because I've seen the, the depths and the extent of the deep state. But if I can be of service to him, of course. So Mark, as a psychiatrist, have you diagnosed Dr. Gorky yet? Well, you know, my, my best source of data and information has actually come from the drop-in show, Drop-Ins that he often arrives at as I'm getting dressed in the morning and going to work on the local Salem radio AM 870, which used to be called the Jen and Brian show. And it's now called uh, the Jen and Grant show after um, Brian left uh, a year or so ago. And what always strikes me is Seb's amazing knowledge and degree of competitive capacity to challenge someone like Brian Whitman in a knowledge base of 80s pop music. It's like, name that tune. And in three notes, he's got the name. He's like, that's Devo. How the hell did he know this? 
I mean, this guy, you know, he's this very authoritative voice and he's a, it's a very, very debonair and aristocratic man and a diplomat. And he's, he's like very impressive man. And then he's got all this, this really basic shit going on from the 80 music culture. Like, how did this guy get this knowledge base? So that to me is so endearing and, and so humanizing that I, I wanted to bring it up because I was always so impressed and I'm pretty good with music. And, and yet he, he's just phenomenal. So I have to ask you, how did you develop such a, a knowledge base of pop culture music from the 80s and 90s? Where did that come from? Nothing special. I mean, I was an only child and I, I am of the greatest vintage known to man. Uh, you know, this is born in 1970. Is there, is there no better vintage when it comes to music and popular culture? I mean, uh -huh. I, I grew up in the age of Queen, uh, Billy Joel, Level 42, and then, you know, Commando, Predator, uh, Red Dawn. Is, 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 there, is there a better period in popular culture in America? I mean, Elvis was cool, but seriously, come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what What's the last concert you went to, Steph? Oh, uh, my gosh. I haven't been to a concert um, since I went with my, my young daughter uh, in Budapest. There's an amazing... Um, it's not R&B. It's, 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 it's even... It's a kind of doo-woppy group from the UK called Matt Bianco, and they came to, to Budapest uh, to give a live concert. And my, my young daughter said, "Let's go, Dad!" And the coolest this is one of the coolest memories of my life. My daughter must have been I mean, she was young. She, she must have been like eight. And, and we were on Margaret Island. Margit Sigat is this huge island in the middle of the Danube in the middle of Budapest. Um, where, where they have a zoo, they have a live concert. I mean, it's a place where you go at the weekend, families go, just this beautiful, massive island in the middle of the river. And I was a huge fan of Matt Bianco, and I had their CDs at home, so my daughter knew all the words. And the, one of the greatest moments of my life is, we are rocking away, we are bopping, <laughs> dancing together, me and my little girl, and a guy from behind me in Hungarian says, that is the coolest thing. A dad and his daughter dancing together at a concert. And that's like, you know, th these, are, these are the important things in life. Yeah, absolutely. So what's on the horizon for uh, Dr. Gorka? What are some projects that you're working on that our audience would be interested in? Wow, that's a great question. Thank you. So um, the radio show every day, uh, Newsmax, the Gorka reality check every Sunday. And then we just started filming my own TV show, Super excited. I've had a, an idea since I left the White House um, that my wife, my amazing wife, got fully funded. So we started filming a program on uh, conspiracy theories, destroying the most pernicious ones and introducing you to some real ones that you need to know about. So that whole season will be filmed by February and then we're going to pitch it or we're going to release it ourselves. And then uh, beyond that, that's just fun. That's super fun. It's you know, also... Um, giving into all my in interest in popular culture. The big important thing is I'm starting this week on Friday to launch on my radio show something called the, the Manhood Hour that will be also a film, a documentary, and probably a book. Um, Matt Walsh did a great service with his What is a Woman, and now I think it's time after what Jordan Peterson has done to, to take the issues of... of manhood and the assault on man uh, to the next level and, and give people answers to uh, what's being done 
to a whole generation? How do we celebrate and recapture a manhood in all its, uh, you know, in all its toxicity and make sure that we have real men for the future to protect and save our civilization? So that's, that's going to be my passion project for the next few years. I think that's, that's wonderful. One yeah. of the most important things we, we do in the U.S. today is reassert masculinity. It's a topic that I speak out on frequently, especially in churches. I write about on Substack and I include in my books. Wonderful. It's primer numero uno. I just received uh, several books actually from a man who has a uh, website and has written about this as far back as I think 14 years ago. Uh, and his uh, website focuses specifically on masculinity and goes into detail on everything from how to suture a wound to how to survive in the woods to how to speak to women. Uh, unbelievable source and fountain of information, and I'm so glad that what's you're it, taking what's that. What's his name? May, may I ask? I will get the book right now because it's actually. I think this is really important. And if you're interested, so every Friday it's going to be uh, the third hour of my show is going to be the Manhood Hour. So uh, you can download the app. You can listen to the show 24/7. SebGorka.com. You can listen to it. Uh, it cycles all through the day. You can listen to it on Spotify. So if this excites you guys, uh, your listeners. Uh, then uh, every Friday from 5 to 6 Eastern is going to be the Manhood Hour. Okay, The Way of Men. Jack Donovan. Got it. He right. started this about 15 right years ago, and he has a website uh, that he developed that's had over, I think, 15 million views, and he has regular posts. Wow. I just perused it yesterday. It has hundreds of hours of articles, videos, photographs. It's very sophisticated, and it goes into exactly what you're trying to um, to jumpstart as this passion project. I'm just starting the book. I just got it yesterday from Amazon. It's it's really quite impressive. It was referred to me actually by a uh, Australian, I'm sorry, South African podcaster named Jeremy Nell, who has a wonderful podcast uh, that's called Germ Warfare, J-E-R-M, Germ Warfare. He's out of Cape Town. And he interviews all sorts of people. He's interviewed Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's interviewed um, local politicians in the U.S. He interviewed me a few times, a lot of the doctors uh, who are fighting all this nonsense. And uh, he started his podcast, Inspired by Jack Donovan, uh, as a way to reassert truth and uh, masculinity. And he's a wonderful interviewer, too. I, I, I think he would be a great source of information. Jeremy Nell, N-E-L-L, -L, Germ Warfare. He's a cartoonist. Yes, you know him. He, he, he's a beautiful no, no, cartoonist. No, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just looking it up right oh, now. He does cartoons and graphic design, and he has an amazing gift for drawings and satirical uh, uh, cartoons. He has a set of mugs that he painted. Uh, one of them uh, has a picture of a shark on it, and it's called the, uh, the, great, the great White... Oh, jeez, what was the word he used? Uh... Great white shark supremacy, something like that. I can't remember the pun, but he's 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 quite gifted and and very smart, and he does a lot of good drawing, and he's a very good uh, designer for his his podcast. I have uh, recommended a lot of people uh, watch and listen to it. Well, thank you kindly. Well, speaking of manliness, um, we're just about out of time, and I'm going to go in the backyard and chop some wood. Uh, I think forage <laughs> through the forest. <laughs> So Hunt, just re wrestle a bear with your bare hands. Exactly. So Seb, <laughs> any, any, any parting words to our liberty loving audience about some action items that they can take to try to make America a little bit better and just re reclaim our country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so beyond what I said earlier, ne never censor yourself. 
if you don't if you don't openly espouse the values you say that you hold, then you do not hold those values. Sorry, guys, it's just a fact. Um, if you believe in something, you better be able to put your name to it publicly. That that's the measure of a man. Secondly, every good believer, if you're a man of faith, when you wake up in the morning, you should say your prayers and you should ask yourself, what am I doing to the glory of God today? Pick one thing. When you, when you go to bed at night, uh, the Catholics call it an examination of conscience. You do the same thing. You ask yourself, did I achieve what I said I was going to do to the glory of God today? I would have one request to everyone listening that when you do that in the morning, when you do that at night, to your creator, the man that gave you your life, gave you your liberty, made everything that is good, do one more thing. In the morning, when you decide on what you're going to do to glorify our creator, also decide upon the one thing, and it doesn't have to be huge, you don't have to start a TV show or you know, build a, a monument just one thing that you are prepared to do that day to help America, to help restore the Republic. One conversation you're going to have with a person, uh, one post you're going to put on social media. And then at the, at, when it's time for bed, when you pray about, you do an examination of what you've done for the Lord, ask yourself, did I do what I said I would do to help save America? If we all do that, this will be a very short mission and we will be very, very successful faster than we can even imagine. Those are my, my requests. That is great advice. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, thank you for joining Informed Dissent. Thank you, guys. God bless. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, informed dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.